Welcome to Royals Review Radio. I'm Max Reaper, the editor of Royals Review. Later on, we'll have Sean Newkirk and Matthew Lamar on to give their early impressions of spring training. Well, first, we have a special guest. Mark Simon is a writer and analyst for Sports Info Solutions. He's also been a contributor to ESPN and Baseball Tonight. He's also the co-author of a new book, The Fielding Bible, Volume 5, co-written with John Dewan and Brian Reef. Brian, thanks so much for being on the er, Mark, thanks for much for being on the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, good to talk Royals baseball here. Yeah, well, you know, I, it's always cool to talk about defensive uh, analytics because I feel like we're just learning so much all the time. Um, and we were like a far cry from like the the days when like fielding percentage was considered like the gold met the gold standard for defenders. Uh, in in your new book, you, you have kind of a new metric. Uh, called the part system. Can you talk a little bit about that and how it differs from, uh, you know, metrics we're familiar with, such as defensive run saved? Yep. Okay. So the part system is a part of defensive run saved, which I think at this point is the most well-known of the advanced defensive metrics. You sometimes hear uh, about UZR uh, and now uh, StatCast outs above average is certainly gaining popularity. Uh, I encourage people to look at all of them. I uh, certainly encourage them to look at ours uh, comprehensively. Um, so I should explain that defensive run save dates to 2003. Uh, so that gives us a, a pretty good sample of 17 seasons to work with. Uh, and the idea behind it was to put a value on everything that a fielder does that is important to his position so that we could say he's worth this much. Uh, and that is what John Dewan and Bill James did in the inaugural editions of the Fielding Bible, uh, which was uh, volumes one, volume two, et cetera. We're on five now. And what we did for five was we tinkered uh, in a good way with the way that we compute infield defense. Um, and under the old system, uh, it was devised at a time when shifting was not really a thing. Um, and we didn't have to necessarily worry as much about positioning because a lot of the time guys were in the same spot. Uh, but now defensive positioning has changed things completely. So what we're able to do is with this system, we separate positioning from performance, meaning did the guy get to the ball? Did he make the throw? Um, so what that does is it allows us to look at performance and defensive shifts, for example. Uh, in previous version of the defensive run save stat, everything that happened in a shift was credited to the team. Now we're able to credit it to the player, which, as a result, in a lot of cases took the best players, the Matt Chapmans, the Nolan Arenados, uh, the Andrelton Simmons, and made them better. Uh, not surprising. And it took the guys that weren't as good and made them worse. But there were a few surprises along the way. There's a Missouri guy. Uh, Missouri mate, I guess, so to speak, Paul DeYoung uh, had a big spike in his defensive run saved as a result. And the book explains uh, how we went about doing this. It's not, it's not necessarily the most radio-friendly thing to do, but essentially you take a batted ball and you look at it from multiple different perspectives. Uh, you look at it from uh, the perspective of before anything happened, where the, the fielder was on the field. Then you look at it at the, from the perspective of after the fielder touch the ball. Uh, and we can separate positioning from range from throwing. And we can tell you, okay, this guy is the best at getting to balls, uh, but maybe his arm isn't necessarily as valuable as it should be. Or um, Fernando Tatis Jr., the Padres, is a good example of this. He gets to everything, and then he throws it away. So he's among the very best in range, but he's among the very worst 
in arm. And I think that it's educational and it gives us a chance to learn a little bit more about defense than we knew previously. Yeah, I kind of like how that's broken down, and because I mean, there's so many different aspects to defense. I mean, it, may, it would make sense to get kind of have that have that on a more granular level. And you talk about positioning, and, and I remember like when Eric Hosmer was here, like he was such a lightning rod defensively because you looked by the eye test, you know, he looked like a smooth Gold Glover, and of course he was rewarded accordingly. But by the metrics, uh, you know, the metrics certainly didn't agree with that notion, and some people did explain that away of as well, maybe you know. The Royals have different positioning. They have them guard the line a little bit more. Whether or not that was true, I don't know. But uh, you know, you, you wrote a little bit about the eye test, and how, you know, how when you when you're coming up with the metrics, what do you do when you see a guy like that who maybe has a good reputation or looks like a good defender by the eye test, but maybe the metrics don't quite line up? Um, you know, how how should we kind of evaluate that player? So, all right. Admittedly, I work in a little bit of a different setting, uh, and I should mention too that our company, our main consumer is teams mm-hmm. um we provide our data to more than two-thirds of the major league teams we provide nfl teams data as well uh that's kind of a growing business for us um but with regards to uh, things not matching up what i usually wind up doing is i go right to individual plays and i look for patterns uh like with hosmer maybe it's that he's not uh, responding well when he's holding a runner on base i want to say that I, I looked into that when he was with the Padres. Um, and maybe there's a pattern of him missing balls, hit hit down the line or hit to his right, uh, either or, when he's holding a guy on and he's just not quick enough to get to them. And I, 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 I think that's the way that you need to do it uh, because there will be lots of times where the eye test and the statistics won't necessarily match up. He's a good example. Um, Giovanni Urshela on the Yankees, a lot of people think he should be like a top five third baseman. Mm-hmm. But if you look at the numbers, um, he's not uh, an all-world guy at getting the ball down the line. And the guys that are really good, Donaldson and uh, Chapman and guys like that, are really good at getting that ball. And that ball's a double. And if you're robbing doubles, you're going to be a valuable infielder. Um, so you, there's usually an explanation. You just kind of have to dig. It's a little hard for the fan who you know, checks in, checks out uh, to be able to do that. But uh, put your trust in the numbers to an extent because the numbers see all. The numbers see all 162 games, all 2,430 over the course of the season. And there's no East Coast bias with the, when it comes right. to the numbers. So, exactly. so Gio Urshela may get hyped up by Yankees fans, but, but the, the yep. numbers don't lie. So, yep. Uh, so in Kansas City, you know, we, we have prided ourselves on defense in the past. You know, certainly the 2014-15 teams seem to kind of lap the league in when it came to defense. But it's, you know, this this year's or last year's team, at least, was a far cry from that. What's what's kind of your assessment of the Royals defensively right now with the personnel they have? <laughs> well, so we have an essay on every team in the book, uh, all 30 teams. I think I wrote 28 of them. Uh, and I can tell you that the Royals one was one of the maybe six or seven hardest to do. And I led with Brett Phillips, uh, which I guess might tell you something. Uh, The Royals defense last year ranked 17th. The last three years, it's ranked 28th, 18th, and 17th in defensive run saved. And I I guess the highlights are that Mondesi uh, played a very good shortstop last year. There's a section in the book that references how he did getting to balls at the middle. Uh, Alex Gordon wasn't what he typically was. He was still all right but he was not the all-world player 
uh, statistically that you've come to know him as. And certainly that uh, reputation is pretty well deserved. Uh, Billy Hamilton was good when you had him. You don't have him anymore. Uh, Whit Merrifield showed that he is a good second baseman and can play a decent center field. So I guess there's hope there. Uh, and then at catcher, you had Martin Maldonado, who essentially showed you what Sal Perez would be like if Sal Perez was a better pitch framer. Uh, because Maldonado can throw guys out and he can stick the low pitch and get strike calls that other catchers aren't getting. And that is something that makes you uh, a valuable catcher. Uh, those are, I guess, my principal findings at, at this point. You know, Phillips has been kind of an interesting guy we've talked about on the side a lot because we do see spectacular plays from him on defense, and it's just unfortunate that he hasn't been able to make contact enough at the big league level to stick. And we'll see. I think a lot of us want him to get a little bit more playing time this year just to see what he can do. But if he were to get a regular, you know, you know, get some regular playing time, what kind of a defender are we looking at from him, especially in a spacious ballpark like Kauffman Stadium? So I think if the Royals were a really good team at just about every other spot, you would play him and you'd be like, okay, he, he is what he is offensively and you would live with it. Uh, he's very, very good by the numbers. Um, we have... 550 innings, which is a small sample, but it, it starts to kind of tell you something. And he's at 16 runs saved, which is an absurd total for 550 innings, which is, what, like 70-ish games, probably, uh, equivalent of. Uh, that's absurd. And he's great at diving. He's good at sliding. He's good at getting uh, getting to everything he can throw. Uh, just has to find a way to hit or have to put a better team around him so that he can play more. Uh, but when he's out there, I think you can count on him being uh, pretty, pretty good. Well, in the outfield, they're going to have Hunter Dozier this year. Uh, and he's he's a guy that obviously hit really well last year, uh, but they decided to move him off third base. He wasn't, you know, he has negative five defensive runs saved last year. By the eye test, he didn't seem that bad. But the Royals, I mean, he wasn't like he was pushed off the base, off the base by some young prospect, you know, they went out and signed Michael Franco to replace him at third, and and I guess they felt like he, a better defensive alignment would would have Dozier in the outfield. What what's your kind of stance on his defense? Was that a poor enough showing to kind of warrant moving him to the outfield like that? So I'm looking at at this, and this is on <laughs> for anyone that has the book. Page 186 uh, lays out his numbers for the season, and he got punished for an odd thing he got punished for some bunt hits mm. that i guess he tried to field which i don't know year to year that you necessarily have to worry about unless you get a really bad reputation uh but he was he it looks like he improved uh the the amount that you would want him to improve at third base uh he went from negative nine to negative five 2018 to 2019 which is a good start and if you take the bunts out of the mix he's almost average um, he was better. Uh, he was very good when they shifted, and I guess I, I'm thinking what that means is that when he played kind of shortstop in it or wherever they stuck him, uh, that he handled it all right. Um, so I, I guess I would say I'm a little surprised that they moved him off, but um, I guess they felt that it was a, a necessity. His throwing numbers are not good. Maybe they felt that that would be better served in the outfield. Yeah, I certainly was surprised as well. I, I, you know, he's a former shortstop, and I thought he always had pretty good hands at the position uh but but perhaps there's something there that you know that they're saying that 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 maybe we're not privy to um and we'll have to see how he handles right field i mean certainly the royals have seen another third baseman move to the outfield with great results that's alex gordon and he was on your all decade team in your book uh along with lorenzo kane former royal 
Um, you know, at his age, though, he's entering his age 36 season. Um, I mean, I don't know. Is there anything we can tell from the aging curve when it comes to defense? Is he, is he a guy that we can expect to kind of, you know, turn in another gold glove performance? <laughs> uh, I think it's challenging to ask a guy that's 36 to be a gold glove uh, outfielder. We actually have on page 145 of the book uh, an aging curve article that explains uh, where fielders decline, like what age a typical fielder will uh, ascend and then where he will start to drop. And the decline gets pretty steep. When you get past your 30s, the really good athletes uh, find a way, and and Gordon has done that uh, so far. Uh, But I would encourage people to read about that and kind of give you a, a little bit of a sneak peek with that. Uh, I think his best days are behind him, but I certainly wouldn't rule him out uh, as still being uh, pretty good out there. Uh, rounding out the outfield will be Whit Merrifield. He's uh, going to be moving from second base to primarily center. I, I expect we'll see him a little bit at second base, but um, he's, he sounds like he's preparing to play a lot of outfield this year. You know, last year his you know he played some right field. His metrics weren't great. Uh, on the other hand, he didn't exactly you know he didn't have uh, time in spring training to really prepare to play the outfield. Um, what do, you, what do you kind of expect from him going forward? Is you know, is last year's sample size really enough to go on? Yeah, so there's there's about 370 innings for him, which we were talking 550 before. 370 is pretty light. He didn't show badly in that. He had four defensive runs saved by our count, which is like I think what you'd be looking for in 370 innings would be like a red flag, and there are no red flags with that. I'm, I'm thinking, too, about Cattell Marte uh, on the Diamondbacks, and I don't know if Royal fans are necessarily familiar, but he made the transition last year from second base to center field, and he's pretty versatile. Uh, he can play short, too, and he went to the outfield, and I think there were some growing pains at the very beginning, but he eventually evolved into someone who was good at getting the ball that was hit to the deepest part of the park, which you would want for a center fielder. Uh, and he finished the year with six runs saved in center field. So I would be optimistic with Whit Merrifield. I wouldn't necessarily call it a guarantee. There are a lot of good center fielders out there. He could he could finish with, like, in our system, like zero to five runs saved, but still look pretty good because just about every center fielder that's athletic looks pretty good. Um, so I would I would say there's no reason for extreme pessimism on him at this point. Well, Whit, he's also a very handsome man, so he's going to look good doing pretty much anything <laughs> on a baseball field. Uh, you, you talked a little bit about Salvi, uh, Salvador Perez and his pitch framing. Yep. You know, he gets he gets dinged quite a bit on like baseball prospectus uh, for his pitch framing, and I think there still seems to be I guess uh, a, a little bit of a divergence in opinion on how important pitch framing is and. and uh, what, in your, kind of your opinion, like how much does that hurt a team when you have a guy that's maybe not as good at pitch framing? And is that maybe is that you know going to disappear the more we get uh, kind of robot umps and and, and uh, you know accountability with umpires uh, and the strike zone? Yeah, so we take pitch framing pretty seriously at our company. Uh, we have a strike zone uh, control metric essentially, uh, strike zone runs saved. And the cool thing about that is that we don't just look at what the catcher did, but we look at, like, who was on the mound, who the batter was, and who the umpire was. And the batter and the pitcher don't usually impact it that much, but the catcher does, obviously, and the umpire uh, impacts it a lot. So stealing a strike with Bill Miller behind the plate is a little bit different than with 
um, Joe West, for example. Uh, Bill Miller is one of the most uh, eager strike callers in the majors. Uh, Joe West had, for a long time, had a reputation of having a very tight uh, strike zone. How much does that impact someone? Well, I'm looking at Salvador Perez's page right now, uh, and if you were to add on the amount of runs he was costing the team with pitch framing that was below average, he would have been like near the top of our run save list for catchers every year. Hmm. Uh, but as it was, negative uh, eight is going to hurt you and push you out of the top ten, and negative eight uh, is going to hurt you and push you to average. And he's had a number of years like that. He just doesn't get the low pitch uh, call that other catchers do. And you can weigh, like, is that outweighed by stolen base deterrence? Well, in this game, there's not that much base stealing. Yeah. So you have to be really good. You have, to, uh, you have to beat Salvador Perez, essentially, to neutralize being poor in an area. Uh, the, I guess the shame of it is that he's a good pitch blocker uh, by our metrics. Uh, we have one for that, too. If the pitch was in the dirt, did the catcher block it? Uh, or if the catcher had to, like, jump out, uh, did the catcher block it? And we assign a value for that. Uh, he does very well in that. So if you can tolerate the not good pitch framing, uh, I could see why you would think he was terrific. And when the game goes to robot umps, if and when, uh, he's going to see he's going to be one of the people whose value is going to increase as a result. I want to talk a little bit about uh, defensive shifts. Uh, the Royals under Ned Yost, I mean, they did dramatically increase their shifts in the last couple of years, but. He always seemed a little skeptical of it, uh, and I know, you know, some of his players, Jason Hamill in particular, was very critical of it when he was here. What, what, what should we expect from Mike Matheny on shifts? And also, what are you kind of seeing league-wide as far as trends with shifts? Are we seeing more of it, less of it? Is it kind of staying holding steady? So two years ago, Ned kind of gave into it, mm-hmm. uh, and he he did it, uh, and he did it with a pretty high level of frequency. And then last year. Everyone else kind of played catch-up, and the Royals stayed the same. And we actually had Dayton Moore on our podcast talking about this, and he said that he's talked to Mike Matheny uh, about the common-sense aspect of this, that we need to put our guys in the best position to field balls, and you can expect the team, uh, I think, to at least be as aggressive as it was uh, the previous year. But it's, it's funny how it works. Two years ago, they were among the teams that shifted the most, and then they shifted the same amount last year, and they dipped a considerable amount. I'm actually going back to the page right now. They dipped. They went from ninth to 21st, barely changing wow. uh, how much they used. Everyone jumped. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I don't know if that would say, like, I don't know what that says, because they clearly were open-minded to it, and then they, they kind of they decided we're just going to stay the course. I will be curious with Matheny because of the press conference and what he said at that very first one, and I, I referenced this in the book, that he said, oh, uh, I am take, I took a class, I'm more knowledgeable in this stuff now, uh, it, became, it became a necessity for me because it was a weakness. Uh, I am curious to see how that gets applied. Because there's a lot of sabermetrics and analytics that get applied before you know, a pitch is thrown. There's only so many, like, it doesn't necessarily matter to Mike Matheny how many defensive runs saved a guy had uh, up to that point this season in the middle of the game. But there's a lot of stuff that goes into the decision-making processes to who starts and things of that sort uh, that I think is important for him to know. And I'll be curious to see how he adapts because in St. Louis, they didn't, uh, like, they didn't shift at a very high rate. 
they changed a lot under Mike Schultz. I think one of my favorite parts of the book is uh, you talk to some players about def- defense, uh, such like Padres catcher Austin Hedges is one of them. Uh, what, what, do you, what have you kind of learned talking to players about acceptance of defensive metrics? I know there was a lot of resistance, I think, when these new metrics first came out. Uh, are you seeing some more acceptance, and, and are you seeing them use these metrics to enhance their game? Yeah, well, first of all, thank you. This is my, probably my favorite part of the book. Uh, we talked to uh, five different players, a prospect, uh, an infielder, an outfielder, a catcher, and Hall of Fame shortstop Ozzie Smith, which was kind of a bucket list get for me. Um, <laughs> so the, it was very cool to talk to. We talked to Austin Hedges, Nick Ahmed, Kevin Pillar, we stayed National League, and Cabrian Hayes. Um, Nick Ahmed referenced defensive run saves specifically, which I appreciated. He clearly was aware of it. Austin Hedges is aware of the value of pitch framing. Uh, Kevin Pillar... Uh, we understand where his defensive skills lie and what he has to do to be successful. Uh, and he knows that he's not necessarily in Kiermaier or Buxton's league unless he makes diving, sliding, jumping catches. And the metrics bear that out. Uh, he has to play at the aggressiveness level that he plays. So I would say that everyone was familiar with it to an extent. Cabrian Hayes, too. Uh, he said that the players at the minor league level have the you know similar type cards to the ones at the major league level where they're determining where they stand in the field. Uh, and I think for this generation, it's kind of becoming like routine. Like I worked at Baseball Tonight uh, on ESPN uh, for nine years. Um, and when I started, the analysts that we worked with were not savvy to that stuff at all neither was the game for that matter but when you got towards the back end of that and like aaron boone came in the very first thing that aaron boone said in a baseball tonight meeting when uh, a stat was brought up was what's the sample size Hmm. that's completely different from what we were dealing with before right uh and it was really cool it was like a, a watershed moment for us uh i remember like a couple of days later i gave him an article and said can you read this and he was like sure and i was like well that's that hasn't happened before. Uh, so, so I think there's that generation, the Boone generation, is like the transition phase where there was slow acceptance. And now people are seeing that they've cut out the stuff that they don't think helps them win. Like, I think if you asked a player about war, they wouldn't like war. But uh, shifts and pitch framing and things like that uh, help, uh, help them earn their money. Uh, so I think they're very open-minded to it, uh, and it's uh, it's actually it makes the conversation between reporter and player easier uh, in that regard. That's really cool, uh, Mark. Where can our listeners find the uh, the Fielding Bible? Okay, so this is like a five-part um, plug here. If, I, if you <laughs> could bear with me, plug away. All right. So first of all, you can get the book at actasports.com, A-C-T-A sports.com, or you can get it at Amazon.com. You can Google it and try and find it in other places. Those are the two best to get it right now. Uh, I also want to mention that you can go to fieldingbible.com if you want to get kind of a taste of the information that's there. There's a statistics section on fieldingbible.com that I would recommend. You can go to sportsinfosolutions.com uh, if you're interested in learning more about our company, uh, which uh, we're based in Northeast Pennsylvania, and um, we have... Uh, our offices aren't like particularly special or anything, but we have people that come in and they're charting the heck out of games and every game's watched three times and an NFL game is watched for 24 hours combined uh, for each game uh, that's played. 
uh, and it's an interesting process, and you can learn more about our company at that site. Well, you can go I just to- want to say it's really cool that people are paid to watch that much baseball. <laughs> yes. <laughs> what a cool job. Uh, yes, they, they, it, I, I'm sure that there can be, like, it can get tiring, yeah. but uh, we, have, we have a pretty good group of seasonal employees that come and uh, do the, the bulk of that work. They're known as video scouts, uh, and many of them uh, go on to get jobs in the industry, the GM of the Tampa Bay Rays, Eric Neander, started as a video scout. Fangraphs and Baseball Reference house defensive run save. So does RotoWire, uh, if you're familiar with that. Uh, what haven't I plugged? Our Twitter is sportsinfo underscore SIS. We tweet out a lot of baseball and we tweet out a lot of football stats. Uh, we kind of go beyond what's in the book sometimes uh, with extra things that I think people will find interesting. And I think that's the end of my five-part plug. Well, you can also follow Mark on Twitter at, is it Mark A. Simon Says? It is, yes. A is my middle initial, so that's why it, it is how it is. I believe you have a, an offer for people to, uh, on Twitter? Yes, we do. Uh, if you buy the book and show me, Mark A. Simon Says, proof of purchase that you bought the book, I will either come up with five stats you didn't know about your favorite player, or write a poem about your favorite player. I've done one so far. I would love to do uh, plenty more. If it's going to be a Royals poem, we could write about the, uh, shoot, we could write about Salvador Perez's game-winning double. That could be uh, pretty good poetry. Or if you're, uh, of, I guess, closer to my age, uh, the 1985 team is certainly a fun team to reminisce about. I, about. I would love to write a poem about them. Just send me proof of purchase that you bought the book. How can you pass up that offer, stats or a poem, on Twitter? So That's great, Mark. Hey, thanks again for being on the podcast. You got it. And we're back, and joining me as usual is Sean Newkirk. Sean, I feel like you, uh, you're you kind of thrown off a little bit by the daylight savings time. Yeah, you know, I don't own a watch, so I kind of just walk around just <laughs> like, like Kramer. Kramer on Seinfeld kind of just knew what time of day it was. He didn't have a watch. He could just say, okay, I'm going to wake up at this time, and he mentally would wake up, but um, I'm not quite there yet. I feel like there's been a lot of complaining about daylight savings. This year. There's like there's like bills to end, you know, proposed to end it, and I just feel like, you know, it's like we switch our clocks an hour twice a year. It's not yeah. that hard. It kind of yeah, sucks yeah. for like a day, and then you like get used to it. And I like yeah, having I mean, sunlight. Late in the day. Yeah, so. I'd say the extra sunlight at summer is really good. Yeah. So, hey, also joining us is Matthew Lamar. Matthew, do you prefer to spring forward or do you prefer falling back? Uh, falling back is great because you just get an extra hour of sleep, basically. Yeah. I would just like to take this moment to um, complain slightly about the people who literally have a full day to recover from springing forward and then still continue to complain on Monday. There are a whole <laughs> bunch of people who have to get up and work on Sunday or have to get up and go to church or, in my case, get up and play music at church who are on the front lines. And do you hear us complaining about it? Yes, you do. But do we complain on Monday? No, we do not. We get it out of the way on on Sunday like everyone should. That's I'm going to stop me right now. Yeah, I kind of feel like you have an excuse too if you like if you have really young kids cuz it does throw them off like sleep time. That's true. You know, true. it's very, you know, rigid usually and then that kind of throws it all off. Uh but yeah, come on. You got a whole day. You got all Sunday you're lying around all day Sunday. You can recover. So well, speaking of spring, it's spring training, and believe it or not, the Royals are pretty much halfway done with spring training. We've got about two weeks to go before we start playing real baseball. 
Uh, the Royals have been playing okay. I mean, like they're they're kind of like always a pretty good team in the Cactus League, it seems like. Uh, so we kind of know that spring training performance, uh, you kind of take it with a grain of salt. But that doesn't mean that nothing matters. I mean, I think there are probably a couple of perceptions we can take from spring training. So, Matthew, what are kind of your early takeaways? Is there anyone maybe that stood out to you in Royals camp or anything that has kind of stood out to you as far as what the Royals are doing down there? Or is this all just a bunch of fake games in the sun? I mean, it is just a bunch of fake games in the sun. <laughs> but, but also, um, you know, oh, and, and while we're at it, you know, I – Max, you make make a good point that the Royals are generally competitive. I do wonder if that's because the Royals are generally bad and the players who are in camp are like legitimately trying very hard to to make the team and therefore they're good because they're um, you know trying hard to make the team. I wonder about that. I have no idea. Anyway, moving on. Um, so what's what sort of jumped out to me is um, a couple of things. Um, first of all, I've I've heard just great things about Kyle Isbell, like from from everywhere, um, you know, and that and that's really good. Uh, he was a guy who's just sort of tore it up um, when he, you know, first uh, started pro ball and then had kind of had an injury riddled season last year. Um, so it's really great to see him, you know, uh, do well. And I think that if the Royals are to succeed um, in this rebuild, they're going to need, uh, you know, some contributions from guys like Isabel, like they got from Salvador Perez. He wasn't a top prospect but he showed up and it was a good player um so they're going to need guys like uh like Perez uh for this cycle and I think Isbell could be one of those guys who um, just sort of sneaks up on everybody and turns into a productive player uh the other thing that I think is really interesting uh Patrick Brennan um tweeted this out but uh he was talking about um the Royals playing their first game in a stat cast ballpark um, so Josh Stalmont, I think, is really interesting. Um, you know, for he finally made um, the the majors last year, um, and the mo on him was sort of that he was a triple digit kind of guy. But when he was here in Kansas City, he wasn't you know nearly that fast, right? He was sitting at um, 96 average last season, and so far in spring training. And from what stats we have, he's sitting at 99. And that's a huge difference. And it sort of lines up with more what his reputation has been. And I think if Stalmont can literally sit at 99, like almost sit at 100 miles an hour on his fastball, like that's that's a huge deal. Um, and I think that if he is good, that could be, um, you know, some sort of depth and top-end talent that the Royals bullpen just didn't have last year. I think those are two really good choices. Isbell... In particular, you know, we knew that he was a pretty good offensive-minded, um, you know, outfielder or second baseman or whatever. You know, he's drafted as a second baseman, um, is moving to the outfield. Uh, I did not know that he was going to be a good defender um, because he was making that transition. Um, I, I think he had played some outfield at UNLV. Um, but – and I don't know what the metrics say or what he looks like long-term out there, but he's made a couple, like, web gem <laughs> – Alex Gordon-esque type plays out in left field. And if he ends up being like a really good defender out there, because, you know, his bat's good, but he's not like a guy that hits in the middle of the lineup and carries a team or anything like that. He's more of a top-of-the-order guy or a complimentary guy in the lineup, not unlike like David DeJesus or Jason Kipnis is a guy that he gets comp to a lot. But if he's a really good defender as well, uh, that's going to play really well in Kauffman Stadium. And so if he can be that kind of player – you know, maybe a guy that gets, you know, 30 to 40 doubles a year, has a high on-base percentage. He's going to be pretty darn valuable for the Royals. And then Stalmont, yeah, I think is another guy who 
I, you know, I think he just looked, looked in the, the in the little that I've seen of him, his fastball looks really sharp. Um, he, he, you know, like you said, the velocity seems to be there. We don't know. I don't know how. You know, I think I think the gun from the Statcast Park is pretty accurate. Um, you know, I know sometimes spring training guns can be a little hot, but um, his velocity does, does seem to be there, and he's throwing strikes. I think that's the important thing. Um, he's always going to be a little wild, but but um, if he's throwing strikes and he's throwing that hard, you got to figure there's a place for him in that bullpen. I think the numbers are kind of working against him right now, but it, you know we should see a lot of him coming out of that pen this year. Uh, Sean, is there is there anything that stands out to you from uh, Royals spring training? No, <clears throat> I think you guys are right about Isbell. Um, he, I was just looking at Clay Davenport's numbers for him, uh, and. If you include a, a wacky Wilmington year, so so far he's been plus four runs in center field in his minor league career. Um, that includes a negative seven uh, run season in Wilmington. So if you leave that out, he's you know plus eleven runs, which is really good. Um, Davenport's number one comp form is David Dahl, which I think is like okay, that kind of makes sense. Guy's going to strike out twenty five ish, maybe thirty percent of the time. Um, has power. Obviously, Dahl gets the benefit of, of Coors Field. Uh, walks just a little bit, but then, yeah, I mean, could be like a 110, 110-ish WRC plus guy. Is a good average or a little better center fielder. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, Isbell stood out a bit in that sense there. Um, that's been the big big takeaways that I've seen, really. I mean, he's been the only one that I've been watching, uh, at least when I've caught a few of the games. That's, which so few are on TV. Um, the other one that uh, was stood out, and I tweeted about it today, was Chris Bubik. Um, had his velocity down just by a little bit. Uh, upper 80s, sitting 93. Or excuse me, upper 80s, touching 93. So that was a little worrisome. I don't think there's an injury. I think it's more just maybe some spring training. But his profile is kind of fringy to begin with in the sense that he doesn't have like a bunch of wipeout pitches. He's just got really good command. Uh, so watching how that ends up ends up being is going to be a big thing if it's just kind of shaking off the rust or actually um something that's you know a long-term issue we'll see a couple names that have kind of stood to me uh tyler zuber who is uh he's yet to make his major league debut um but he's he's only thrown six innings but uh only given up one run so far and eight strikeouts and just some highlights that, that Jack Johnson, if, if you're not following Jack Johnson on Twitter, he's been posting some really good like highlights from some of these games, uh, just showing off Zuber's curveball and his changeup, which if he's got three pitches that he can he can throw pretty effectively, I think that's a pretty good chance that he can be a good, um, a solid reliever, maybe in the middle innings for the Royals. I don't know if he's going to make the team, but um, certainly a guy I think you'll, you'll see sometime uh, in the middle of the season. Uh, another guy's having a good camp, and he seems like he has a good camp every year. Bubba Starling, Matthew. He's hitting 367 with three home runs. Um, I don't know. Is it time to uh, cash in our Bubba Starling stock, or or is this just what he does in spring training? <laughs> I mean, I still think that he can be, you know, a decent backup outfielder, right? Especially if he's used in a platoon situation where you know he's maybe a 20% below league average hitter. But you know, he's really fast. He's a he's a good fielder. He's a good base runner. You know, um, kind of like a Gerard Dyson light type of player um i don't i think the ship has sailed and has gotten uh quarantined because of the coronavirus on his specific uh uh uh, direction like it's he's not going to be a star anymore i don't think he's even going to be a regular but i think he can carve out a nice little career as kind of like a backup outfielder guy 
who uh, you know just does pretty well defense, and you know he's he can play all three spots. Um, you know, I I think this, and this is like kind of a sad comp uh, in terms of um, what what people thought Bubba Starling would be, but like uh, kind of like an Emilio Bonifacio kind of type of player. So Bonifacio played for between 20 set 2007 and 2017. And does anybody like remember anything he did, but he played for 11 years and just kind of doing similar sort of thing. So I think that, you know, it's not the, the best thing that you can do, but he's making league average or league minimum that is. So uh, I think he makes the team. What's more interesting is if he slumps and if like Khalil Lee or Nick Heath is on a tear in Omaha, then I wonder what's going to happen. But he'll make the team. Um, I think Bubba Starling could have a nice, you know, couple year career in the big leagues. The Royals also have a first base competition, and Mike Matheny kind of floated the idea of a soft platoon there, and between Ryan O'Hearn and the left-hander and Ryan McBroom, the right-hander, and both are having a really uh, terrific camp so far. Both hitting over three hundred. O'Hearn with five home runs, McBroom with three. Uh, Sean, I don't know, the competition, I guess, maybe has driven each to, to play a little bit better in here in the spring training. Uh, how do you kind of see that working its way out uh, as we start the season? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, excuse me, O'Hearn's the incumbent and the odds-on favorite, I think. Um, I don't know if they really like McBroom necessarily, especially since he's bounced around. Well, I guess he hasn't really bounced around, but he was traded for fairly cheaply to the Royals. Um <clears throat> I still see as O'Hearn winning out. I mean, we don't really have a history, at least for the Royals, sense of how Mike Matheny, you know, reads into spring training games. Um, we know Ned, and Ned kind of read into a little bit, I think, a little bit maybe more than maybe we would like. Um, so, I, you know, it makes sense to see, like, oh, someone has a really good spring, they went out, and the guy with options gets sent down to AAA just because he's got options. I still think O'Hearn, and not that there's an option issue between O'Hearn and McBroom necessarily, but I think O'Hearn it, it will, for now, be the easy, um, uh, excuse me, first baseman on days when, you know, Hunter Dozier's not uh, spending time over there. Well, there was one interesting spring training rumor, uh, and the Royals, I think, could should, could be on the lookout to kind of adding to the players already in camp. Uh, but Ken Rosenthal of the Athletic did write a little bit about a roster logjam with the Oakland Athletics, where at second base they they already have Tony Kemp, Franklin Barreto, and Jorge Mateo all looking for playing time at second base. All three of them are also out of options. So according to Rosenthal, Mateo has drawn some trade interest interest from the Kansas City Royals and the Detroit Tigers, although he does call the interest in Mateo a bit tepid. Mateo is a 24-year-old middle infielder who uh, was once a top 100 prospect, according to Baseball America. Uh, he hit 289 with a 330 on base and a 504 slug at AAA last year with 19 home runs and 24 steals. So, Sean, what do you know about Jorge Mateo? And he's a, is he the kind of player that the Royals should be interested in? Yeah, sometimes we talk about prospect fatigue a little bit, um, which is the same thing. We did. We had kind of with Bubba Starling, um, just guys have been around forever. Mateo is one of those guys. I mean, he debuted back in 2012. Um, I mean, he fits. He fits the Royals. I mean, to kind of a T, right? He's incredibly fast. I think he's like an 80 runner. Um, plays at several positions: shortstop, second base being one of them, and then can play the outfield, specifically center field, a little bit. Um, makes contact. I mean. He kind of fits maybe the classic Royals model. Um, he's certainly a post-type prospect. 
Um, gosh, I'm totally blanking on who it was that he got traded back. He when he went to Oakland, he went to you in the Sonny Gray deal from the Yankees. Sonny Gray, that's yeah. right. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. right. Okay. Um, so that makes sense. Uh, so yeah, I mean, he's kind of that post type. I mean, he he was a, a legit. I I think Fangraphs is pretty high on him. I I'd have to look up and see what it was, but. Um, I feel like they for certainly really liked him at one point, like as a top 20 guy. So, um, I don't know. Mateo's fine, but he, he's definitely, a, would be a nice trial depending on what they would spend. I wouldn't take any more than a flyer on him, but he fits what they're looking for. And, you know, I, I think it would be worthwhile to give him a shot. I'd certainly rather see him than someone like, uh, you know, Ryan McBroom or, or Michael Franco or something like that. Now, Fangraph has has him at 80 grade speed, which of course the Royals obviously are going to love that. Uh, but he's also a big whiffer, uh, at least for a guy that doesn't have like big time power. He's got pretty good power for a middle infielder, uh, and doesn't walk hardly at all. He only had walked about five percent of the time last year, Matthew. So, is that is this the kind of player that the Royals should be looking for? Um, I mean, the you know certainly the plate discipline. Has seemed to be an issue here in the past. Uh, maybe that doesn't bother the Royals so much, but should it be a concern to them? Uh, I mean, uh, you know, you speak about the Royals liking that 80 speed. Um, traditionally, they also really like low walk, high strikeout guys, you know, uh, the grit. Um, you know, I, th- I think uh, somebody like Jorge Mateo is, is a guy that the Royals should, you know, think about think about acquiring, you know. Um, a guy who another team would keep except for options. And I think the Royals are in a position where they don't really have a crunch on the 40-man roster. I mean, yes, it's full, but it's got guys that, you know, you don't really need on it. Um, But I think that if the Royals were really interested in Mateo or, you know, any of the other sort of similar guys, I think that the Royals should have, you know, tried to trade for them sooner because, at this point, the Royals roster is pretty much set. You know, we've got maybe, um, you know, a couple of bullpen spots, um, the fifth starter and uh, the, util- the utility guy, the 26th man. Um, but that's not a lot of, you know, wiggle room. Um, so I just wish that, you know, if the Royals did like Mateo, they would have, you know, traded for him now um, or traded for him earlier. I think if they, they you know, try to acquire him now, you know, you're not going to give up a lot for him. That is true, but also the he he just kind of goes from one roster crunch to a different roster crunch. Um, so I think that the Royals should be pursuing some somebody like Mateo, uh, somebody that Sean said, uh, you know, post hype. Um, you know, I think sometimes you can forget about these guys a little bit. I mean, he's only 24, so that's not super old. Um, you know, especially if, you know if you think of these college players who graduate um, college or, you know, they get drafted um, and then they make the major leagues a couple years later at age 23, 24. So he's, he's right in there. Um, But I, I kind of don't see where he fits on this team in this roster as currently constructed, maybe mid season, you know, looked for uh, the Royals to acquire him, something like that. Well, I'd argue that if you, you're talking about a team that's thinking about carrying a 27 year old outfielder, who hit like under the Mendoza line in 59 games last year in Bubba Starling, then there's not really that big of a roster log jam. Like they can find room for him, I think. And and also, you know, with Adalberto Mondesi, you know, he has yet to appear in a spring training game. I think it's pretty very much in doubt whether or not he'll be ready for the opening op- opening day. And if he's not, that means that Nicky Lopez is probably your starting shortstop. Whit Merrifield is probably your starting second baseman. 
And right now there's not a guy on the 40-man roster who could back them up as a middle infielder. You'd have to add a guy like uh, Eric Mejia or Umberto Arteaga or veteran Matt Reynolds, who hasn't had a very good spring at all. Um, And, you know, I think I would much rather see a guy like Mateo get a chance to at least get in the mix there in the middle infield. And I think you could find room for him. Um, And I I do think the Royals should be looking for opportunities like this with teams that – teams are going to be looking to, uh, you know – make room for some of these guys. There's going to be some guys out of options that are kind of caught in a roster crunch, uh, even with the 26 man roster this year. And I think the Royals need to be looking for those kind of opportunities. So if Mateo is actually out there, then I think it makes a lot of sense to go after him, especially if the asking price isn't too high. I know the A's were rumored to be interested in reliever Tim Hill last year. Uh, I don't know if that would be enough to get Mateo. Uh, If he's out of options and they kind of need to deal him, then, then I can see a deal like that happening. Uh, but you know, I think a lot of times Royals fans get caught up when we were talking about the rebuild, we get caught up in like, Oh, we need to trade Whitfield Merrifield because we're going to get top prospects for him. And, you know, we, we probably would get some pretty good talent for Merrifield if they aggressively shopped him. But you look at some of the other roster rebuilds and I'm, I know I've made this point several times before, but you know, you don't, it's not like the teams were built off prospects. They got from, from start from like their good players. They get a few players. Uh, but a lot of it's just finding, talent that's available uh when you can and finding kind of gems and diamonds in the rough like like jorge mateo if if he is one of those um and you don't know i mean you can maybe look for like you know 10 of those guys and only one of them pans out but then you end up with like jd martinez or something like that so um i think it's worth taking the gamble on guys like that especially when you don't really have you know what's your fallback matt reynolds uh yeah i I would take the uh, uh you know i'd take the uh the flyer on Jorge Mateo. We don't know if he actually is available or what the asking price would be, but um, those kind of players, I think, would would, uh, would definitely be in the Royals' interest. And I think they are starting to go after those kind of players more. Like uh, Chance Adams was kind of caught in a roster log jam with the Yankees, and the Royals, I think, made a really good uh, deal to get him for, for basically nothing. Uh, and so, if they can get find more players like that, I think that would really add some organizational depth. Because if you're asking for Bubba Starling and Humberto Arteaga to get you know, to be your depth, the AAA, then I think you're probably asking for uh, trouble. <laughs> you know, I, I don't know if that's really the, the future of this team. So I think it, it, it would help to get some more 24-year-old former prospects in there. So, You know, it's funny that you mentioned Tim Hill because um, in the uh, off-season simulation, um, so if you don't know, uh, Max runs sort of an off-season simulation. It's kind of like a fantasy uh, simulation where there's a, a GM or a fake GM of each of the teams. Um, and uh, sort of go through the offseason. Um, I uh, was uh, manning the Royals this year, and I actually traded Tim Hill for Franklin Barreto. The Athletics mm. came to me and said, hey, we That's have a logjam in middle infield. Uh, what do you want to trade Tim Hill for him? And I said, you know, that sounds good to me. Um, so so it's not without precedence. If my uh, you know amateur uh, couch GMing can come up with that trade, you know, Maybe it's not the worst thing that could happen. It, would, it, would make, it seems like it would make some sense. Uh, well, you know, I talked some defense with Mark Simon of Sports Info Solutions earlier, and uh, he has the Royals ranked in the middle of the pack in defense, uh, a far cry from their championship run days of 2014-15. And, you know, I was talking to a friend of mine the other day, and he asked, you know, why have the Royals gotten away from their philosophy of strong defense? Because you look at the team now, and it's it's you know they've got some good defenders. Obviously, Alex Gordon, Alberto Montes, he has some defensive chops. They still have Salvi, but 
uh, it's not certainly not strong all over the field like it used to be. And I thought that was a pretty good question. I just want to get kind of your opinions on it. Uh, Sean, I mean, you've kind of seen this team uh, age out and become, you know, go from the best team defensively in the league to what's, you know, middle of the pack or perhaps even below average defense. What's what do you kind of attribute that to? And, and can the Royals get back back to the top defensively? Yeah, I mean, I was – let me take a look up real quick what the defensive run saved is for when balls go go fly. They fly over the outfield wall for a home run because that's basically – I mean, any argument that teams necessarily need to get back to defense, and we've seen teams like the Rays or, or even Oakland who are just like, we don't care that much about defense. I mean – it's nice. It's a benefit, but you know, offense is really. Um, if you could have good pitching and good offense, I mean, that's really what you need. Um, obviously, good pitching is helped out by good defense, but uh, I think that yeah. I mean, we've we've seen them go from you know one of the best defensive teams in the past twenty years um, to not necessarily being a strength, particularly with some guys on the field. I mean, they just brought in Michael Franco, who's essentially Chesper Chesler Cuthbert defensively. Uh, so I, I'm not sure if they have any, I'm not sure if they've necessarily decided, Hey, we're going to go back to defense or we're going to consider that, you know, that as, as a core philosophy. Um, but I do think that there's been some dilution in the overall value of defense with the new ball. I mean, you know, with strikeouts being up and home runs being up, I mean, what is that? Probably, uh, gosh, I can't even pick a number. What is that? Forty percent, maybe thirty-five percent of all the every pitch thrown in that sense are all outcomes are strikeouts or home runs. Um, and then when you add in walks, I mean, you're almost at like fifty percent of uh, total outcomes there. So I don't know. I, I don't think defensively, at least, is if the ball continues to be what it is. Um, I don't think defensively it's going to matter much um, whether you're you know, the number one team or the number 15 team, I think the gap is so thin. And we've seen that a little bit um, with pitch framing as well. Speaking just of defense, uh, pitch framing has gone from, you know, Jonathan Lucroy was the number one pitch framer by 20 runs or so uh, early on. But now that gap is just closed so much um, because it's added, you know, a little bit lesser value, but also teams have gotten better. And it's the 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 margin to exploit that has decreased and i think the margin to exploit um really good defense has kind of shrunk a bit too um now that you know teams are just gonna go out and hit a home run as opposed to you know worrying about um putting balls in play well the royals you know they don't particularly hit home runs either uh yeah, so you know yeah. you know when you usually when you talk about hitting offense or offense or defense you know it's usually a trade-off like you're gonna take the sluggers who kind of plod on the defensively over like the the guys who are are you know the pea shoot off uh, have no offense but can can really go get the ball, uh, but the Royals so the Royals don't really have the offense. Are there you know we talk about Moneyball being uh, you know exploiting market inefficiencies and since everyone is kind of going away from defense and towards home runs, if the Royals aren't going to be a very good offensive team, even if the margins are small, does it make sense to try to exploit and get every kind of um, uh, advantage they can defensively uh, because they're not going to have offense anyway? I mean, that I don't think so. I mean, that just sounds like, I don't know. That's, I don't, my gut instinct says no. I mean, part of it, I'm thinking like you can go find pretty much good defensive players anywhere, right? It's tough to find good offensive players. Um, so I just wonder if that kind of replacement level gap is it's much, much wider with offense. 
Um, we yeah. also kind of yeah. Go ahead. You know, yeah. I just to say, well, Mark Simon even pointed out the Royals' best defender last year was was Billy Hamilton, who yeah. I mean, he was available for for very little. So yeah, yeah, and, and I mean, we know that. A, a run saved and a run earned. You know, all you need is 11 runs to get a win, uh, uh, you know, in, in sabermetric kind of stance. Um, doesn't matter necessarily how you earn that. I don't know. I, I just think that the cap for defensive runs is, uh, I, I don't know, what do you typically see? The num- the best guy via runs, like 20-ish. Uh, but then you see Mike Trout put up 50 runs, you know, offensively in the season. So I just think that, it, it there's just not as much value to add, um, particularly since you know even if you have a really really good defender, even if you have you know Andrelton Simmons, um, the ball is not going to go to him every single play, right? But Mike Trout's going to get 600 at bats, so you know you can kind of pencil in consistency with hitters, you know as long as they're healthy. So I just don't think it's there. I, I think I'd rather be a good offensive team in this environment than a good defensive team. No, I think you're right. I think generally, I, I think that the, the, the fact that not only do we have more home runs and strikeouts, but, you know, also defensive shifts and the the use of the high rise and shifts yeah. now has really yeah. cut down on the usefulness of having a guy that can show a lot of range. Uh, and so the, the, the value, I think, has been mitigated quite a bit. Still, though, I mean, Matthew, I, I'm kind of surprised the Royals have allowed the defense to kind of atrophy because I know... I mean, it seems like they place such a high emphasis on it anyway, regardless of maybe what the metrics might say. Or, or I think just, I think it's just something Dayton Moore kind of believes to his core. And I think a lot of people with the Royals, I mean, you look at their two championship clubs, they were built on, on defense, really great defense uh, and pitching. And uh, it still does kind of surprise me that they've allowed this team to kind of sag into what's, you know, the middle of the, the pack to below the, the pack um, defensively. I mean, what – What's kind of your take on the state of the defense, and and do you think the Royals will ever get back to that that top position? Yeah, I think that um, one of the things that, or one of the reasons why that they were really good in 2013, 2014, 2015, was uh, you think of uh, four guys, right? So you Salvador Perez is one. Um, Perez, um, in terms of non-pitch framing, is an elite defender at catcher right you think of alex gordon who has won a bajillion gold gloves and he was at the height of his powers then i mean he was a he was a platinum winner um in one of those years i don't remember um then you had lorenzo kane who is um finally won his gold glove but he's also an elite outfielder and then you have Gerard Dyson, who is kind of underrated, but he is also like as good as Lorenzo Cain in terms of outfield, um, if not better. Um, and if you think about it, those are like three probably of your top ten defenders like during that time, or top ten outfield defenders that were all in the same team and all played a whole bunch of innings together. And then you have a, an elite catching uh, defender. That together is a really good like top end if you're if you're t- talking about like stratifications of talent. Like you're going to have a top end, a middle end, and a low end in your team. That top end just isn't there anymore um, in terms of uh, the Royals' current team. Like if you were to look at the Royals' team right now and say, who is their best defender? I would probably say Brett Phillips, um, and the members would probably back that up. But he's not a great hitter, and he can't stay in the lineup, or he hasn't been able to stay in the lineup. Um and other than that, like who is like the elite defender? You know, Gordon's older and he's lost a couple steps, as is natural. Um, Perez uh, didn't play last year. Um, 
the Royals don't really have the Gerard Dyson sort of equivalent. Um, certainly not the Lorenzo Cain equivalent. So it's the top end, I think, has really sort of fallen off. And I think that'll be alleviated a little bit um, if Mondesi is able to be a full, healthy shortstop player. You know, he's got the defensive skills for that. Um, but they're going to need some of their um, guys coming up. You think about it like uh, guys like Nick Heath, who could be a really good center fielder, um, somebody like Kyle Isbell, who could be a really, really good left fielder. The Royals just don't have that top-end defensive talent that they did back when they were in the best defensive team in the league. And I sort of really think it's that simple. And it's hard, you know, to Sean's point, it's hard to find top-end defensive talent that's also offensively good enough that they can stick and play all the time. So that's that's really part of it. Um, the defensive top-end talent isn't there. Um, and what top-end defensive talent they do have isn't good enough offensively to play all the time. And I think that's really the simplest reason why they, they haven't been as good. Yeah, I think sometimes, too, and you're, you're absolutely right. It's hard to find guys that are good defenders and also can, can kind of carry their weight with the bat. And so some of this is, I think, just a matter of opportunity. Like, they – you know, you kind of have to be a little bit lucky to find these guys sometimes. But then they, they, uh, you know, they kind of—I wouldn't say they lucked into Lorenzo Cain, but I don't think anyone knew he was going to be that kind of defender. Um, and so maybe there hasn't been quite the opportunity to find a player like that. Like in the drafts, you know, they went and got Brady Singer instead of maybe a good defender who uh, maybe would have been a reach at that pick. Uh, and so I certainly I think you want to get the best player available instead of reaching for a guy just because you want to emphasize defense. So, uh, I, you know, I certainly don't think they should be putting defense above putting a good team out there. So I am a little surprised they haven't, um, you know, they've emphasized defense up the middle for so long. And they have Salvador Perez still. And I think Montesia does have the skills to be a top uh, defensive shortstop. But they haven't really identified that, that ball hawk in center field uh, you remember that when they when they traded Zach Greinke, I mean, it was really important for them to get kind of a center fielder in return for him, or at least get a center fielder uh, in some sort of trade. And they got Lorenzo Cain, and they haven't really made that uh, a priority, I don't think, uh, since then. I guess maybe you could argue Brett Phillips was uh, kind of targeted in that way when they got they made the Mike Moustakas trade. But, you know, there really hasn't been an heir apparent to Lorenzo Cain, and he's been gone for a couple of seasons now. Now, maybe they thought Bob, Bubba Starling would evolve into that role, but uh, and maybe Khalil Lee is supposed to be that role, and I think he is a pretty good defender. We'll see how he how he uh, plays at the major league level in the center field if he gets uh, if he gets his chance up here in the next year or so. But um, they don't really have that obvious like ball hawk that's going to uh, kind of solidify that position. I think it kind of starts there. Um, so I, I think it's probably a big big part of it. But also, just like you know, the corner infield positions have been kind of subpar for a while. Um, they've really missed Mike Moustakis' glove at third uh, and say what you will about Eric Hosmer, but um, you know they haven't really had a good defensive first baseman since he left. So it is a problem, and it's, it, like you said, it's hard, but it's also just hard finding good baseball players. Uh, so I don't know if it's – I wonder if that will start being more of an emphasis for them, knowing how much they, they really pride themselves on defense and knowing that they, they probably do want to get back to that formula of success that they had during their championship run. Well, I did – kind of want to end by addressing at least a little bit about the growing concern over coronavirus and how it's getting into sports uh, and look with people getting seriously ill and dying from from the disease uh, obviously sports like baseball take a back seat um, to health concerns if 
public officials feel like there's too much risk, and, and certainly we don't want to act like sports is more important than that. Uh, but we did want to talk about how it, it was going to impact uh, baseball a little bit. Already the leagues in Japan and Korea have delayed the start of their baseball seasons. Now, obviously, those countries have had uh, more of an impact from coronavirus earlier than, than the United States. Uh, but we are starting to see some of the effects here as well. The Ivy League uh, this week canceled their postseason basketball tournament. The uh, governor of Ohio, Mike DeWine, has advised against holding sporting events in indoor stadiums there. Uh, we see numerous conferences and events like uh, South by Southwest and Coachella canceled or delayed. And there's even some concerns that the Summer Olympics in Tokyo may have to be postponed or even canceled. Uh, Matthew, Major League Baseball addressed concerns this week by placing a temporary moratorium on reporters having access to the clubhouse. And we've seen a little bit of backlash to that from some reporters and even some players. Um, is that a prudent step to take? And is, is there a possibility that we'll have games played without fans or, or possibly even the season pushed back? It's really hard to tell sort of where this is going. You know, uh, on one hand, it sort of feels like this is a bit of a runaway train uh, regarding the coronavirus and that it's just going to be everywhere uh, at some point. But on the other hand, like we as sort of a world can't just like continue to or, or just stop doing things, right? We can't just stop having people interact with other people forever. So at some point, this is going to stop um, in terms of um, canceling events, um, postponing things, that sort of thing. So, uh, you know, to that part of the question, I genuinely don't know. I think it's certainly a possibility that we have baseball games played in front of uh, seats and not fans. Although for Royals, uh, that's pretty normal. Hey, oh, um, <laughs> opening um, day is still not a sellout. <laughs> yeah. uh, I do. I do think the. Um, <laughs> the interaction of reporters and players is a little weird. Uh, namely because players interact with other people anyways. Like, are they also stopping these players from going to shop at Trader Joe's or whatever? Are they stopping them for going, for going out to eat or, you know, watching a movie or whatever? I just think it's very odd that in this one very specific situation in which you as a league and as an t- organization have a high degree of, of control over who gets to see your players in the first place. That's where you're sort of limiting them. That, that just seems crazy to me. Um, I, I just think that that's a little over the top because you can't control what the other players are doing all the other times that they're not in uh, a baseball field, which I, I just, I genuinely don't understand that, but you know, whatever, I guess. Well, yeah, and Sean, it just seems like it's, it's it's so hard to get like good guidance on what how we're supposed to behave right now. Like, are we should we travel on airplanes? Should we not travel on airplanes? Should we just stay home as much as possible? Uh, you know, and we do have these like major sporting events coming up. March Madness is coming up. You know, and there's going to be games in Ohio, which they've advised not to have sporting events. Major League Baseball is going to open the season in late March, and games are going to be held in Seattle, where they've had quite an outbreak already. Uh, I don't know, like how I don't I don't know if any of us really know how this is going to play out. I mean, what, what's kind of your take on on how baseball is going to handle this? Yeah, I mean, I'm flying to Greece in June, so hopefully everything uh, hope everything is hammered out by then. Um, I mean, you know, 
it's it's the right move in the sense that I think baseball attracts a little older crowd, not old, but you know a little older than maybe football. Um, and, and so I think it makes sense in that that shutting it down if necessary is good for the health of everybody. I mean, no offense to you know MLB owners, but they're going to be okay if they don't have you know attendance for maybe a month or something, or they you know for some reason revenue takes a, a, a hit, a little bump. Um, because most signs point that, I mean, you know, if you look at China and if you look at what I think it was South Korea, um, have, has done a really good job of basically there's a hump. And then, you know, once you've kind of quarantined, made sense, everything kind of slows down. Um, so if, if, and when the U S can get there, you know, hopefully it's very soon, but, um, you know, I think it's worth it. And we've seen other, We've seen other likely Ivy League schools. They just canceled their uh, the Ivy League just canceled their tournament. There's talk, very unrealistic, but there is very some talk about um, like the NCAA tournament being shut down. So that's the number one priority. It's just making sure that more people don't get infected, and we just kind of stop putting people who are at risk, stop putting them at risk. Because as much as you can say, hey, don't go to a baseball game, people still will go, especially you know, people who might be at risk. Um, so I think it makes sense if the CDC or uh, really it's the CDC because doesn't seem like there's anybody else higher in the administration doing much. Um, if someone says, hey, you know, this is just too dangerous, I would hope that um, Manfred makes the right call and doesn't necessarily have to shut down the sport. Games can still be played, um, but, you know, you shut down clubhouses. Um, you should really do no attendance. We saw Baltimore successfully completed a game with no attendance, whatever it was, a year or two ago. So um, I think Manfred should make the right decision if that's called on to just go ahead and, um, you know, shut down as much as he can with the game still being played or stop the games. I mean, it's not that big of a deal. I'd rather if one person dies because the Twins and the Indians wanted to play on April 19th on a Tuesday at 2 o'clock. It's not worth that life. Um, so I, I think if, if it's drastic enough, yeah, we could shut everything down. Yeah, Baltimore had that game a couple years ago where they had uh, civil unrest after the Freddie Gray verdict, and so they had a game without any fans allowed in the ballpark. And it was a very eerie feeling. And um, I imagine we will have some sporting events, maybe basketball and, and hockey where you, you, they just play without fans. I know in Italy they had a couple games like that in soccer. Um, it'll be interesting to say they do that with baseball as well. I think they, it, some, you know, an overabundance of caution I think would be wise. I mean, like, I don't know. You know obviously the players are, are not going to be at super high risk since they're young and healthy. And I think most, a lot of fans probably won't be at risk either. But I think the, the big thing is you don't want to spread it. You don't want it to continue to spread to other communities and where you are putting people at risk that maybe yeah. have uh, compromised and- uh, immune systems. Yeah, I'd say let's let's clarify too, because at, at risk, I, and when I said at risk, I didn't just mean people who will die from it. I, I mean, obviously, people, anybody can get the disease, right? I'm just thinking of you'd hate for someone maybe our age to get it, and then, um, well, I mean, I'm only 18. I don't know how old you guys are. I'm still very, very young. Uh, I'm 83. But, yeah, yeah, right. Uh, so, I mean, you'd hate for someone our age to get it and then, you know, we'd be fine, but then pass it on to someone else. So that's what I meant at risk. I didn't mean to demean – I didn't want to come off as saying like, oh, only old people are at oh, risk. Sure, yeah. Everybody's at risk. Right. But, you know, older and very, very young folks are more susceptible to uh, succumbing to it. So I think shutting it down makes sense if, if it's called for that. Well, let's wrap things up by uh, giving our Royals review review for the week. Uh, Matthew, what do you have for us this week? All right, so 
this is inspired by uh, some uh, comments that happened in an article that I put that I published a couple of days ago. And my review is just sort of that language is sort of fascinating. Uh, so I, if you are a uh, youngin, uh, you probably know what the word yeet means. <laughs> um, so I I use the word yeet uh, to describe the Royals getting rid of bad players on their team. Um, and there were a bunch of people in the comments. Um, I'm not going to throw Max under the bus, but he was one of them who was like, I, I don't know what this is. Uh, <laughs> I'm an old. You are, you are an old. But, you know, like when it's it's always fascinating to me, and it's, it's especially more fascinating now um, in sort of this age of, um, of the Internet and in these varying apps that connect people globally. Um, and you just sort of like see things like appear like when yeet first started happening i was like what the hell is this i don't know what yeet is um but somebody else knew what it was right and enough people knew what it was that it got to me and i was just wondering like where did these things start like who came up and just said like yeet this means this you know or whatever or like i so a more a more recent one is i i uh, just looked up what the word like bomoclot means. I've heard, I've seen it on Twitter a couple times, and it's like like b o m b o c l a a t, and it's apparently like um, some sort of slang uh, term in um, oh gosh, I don't even know the language, but it like it's a, a different language, like a slang term that means like use toilet paper or whatever. It's just like out of nowhere, like why is this showing up in my feed? It's Jamaican patois. Yeah, it's Jamaican. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, on, and <laughs> I, I don't know. Who comes up with these? I don't know. Who knows? The I don't youths. know if anybody knows. The youths. <laughs> yes, all of them at once. Yeah, I didn't understand a word you said. I, that's all It's all gibberish to me. Uh, uh, I, I only knew yeet because my kids said it, and I wasn't quite sure if it was a dirty word that they shouldn't be saying or not. So uh, I'm glad you explained it to me. I feel better. My mind's oh, at ease now. Uh, Sean, what do you have for, this, for us this week? Um. The I kind of fell into it. I didn't even I didn't even know it existed until like two or three days ago. Um, CNN, yes, yes, listeners, you can just turn it off now. I'm going to say something about CNN here. Uh, <laughs> CNN has kind of a cool thing um, called, uh, gosh, race for the White House. Um, I'm always really interested. I, I feel like uh, uh, I feel like there isn't enough digital media or at least television or maybe YouTube videos necessarily that do a great job of covering past events. And so race for the white house is, um, if you're on YouTube TV, I think you can watch every season, every episode. It's, they just started the second season. Um, it goes back in time and looks at, I, I what I assume will be every riot white house race, but it's gone back and done like 15 of them. Um, I just watched the Obama Hillary one, uh, the race for the 08 white house, the kind of dim, obviously the big focus was the dim nomination that year. So that was cool. But I mean, it's going all the way back to the Lincoln ones. I mean, there's, there's so many of them and I think it's really cool. And part of it, I usually don't like when stuff, when like documentaries uh, do this, but they, I wouldn't call it a reenactment, but they do this kind of far back camera. Like they'll have a ton of live footage and a lot of like the Obama and Clinton one had a bunch of Obama marching and speeches and back uh, behind the scenes interviews with campaign managers and like, but then sometimes for very critical moments, they'll have this kind of like, uh, they'll have like, uh, an African-American man with his back to the camera <laughs> kind of shadowed, you know, like it's kind of like a reenactment in the sense that it, it's, 
there's some there just to kind of get a sense of what was going on, but it's not someone playing Obama. It's just kind of um, a, a very, you know, out of focus. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Kind of thing. And, and you can figure out what they're doing. So I think it's really cool. Um, like I said, they just started the second season. The first season has a bunch of them. I think it, they're up to 15 or so now. So I think it's really cool if you like, um, if you like that kind of historical stuff. And like I said, I, I don't think we do a good enough job of re- recapping or kind of um, teaching about this because, you know, uh, some of these, some of the, some of these things, I literally had to go look up. Is it Millard or Willard uh, Fillmore the other day? Because I literally had no <laughs> idea. Um, I, I thought it was Willard for a second. Then I go, wait, that doesn't seem right. It's Millard. So, anyways. No, I've caught a couple of those episodes. It is, it is pretty good. And it is fun. It is interesting to go back and look, especially through the lens of today, like at some of these races, some of the things that were at stake back then. Uh, oh yeah. I, and, and if I if I were to recommend a book to about the '08 campaign between Clinton and Obama, it would be. Um, Game Change by Mark yeah. Alperin and John Harlan. It's a pretty good book, a pretty good account, insider account of what, what kind of happened behind the scenes. And then if you really are interested in political campaigns and you want to read a, probably the gold standard of books on uh, campaigns, the 1988 uh, presidential election is covered by Richard Ben Kramer in probably the seminal work on, on any kind of a campaign. It's called What It Takes. And it's a 900-page tome, so it's you know it took me like three years to read. But it's it's such a good book. It's so many great stories. Uh, Joe Biden is you know is featured quite a bit in it, and this is what uh, you know thirty years yeah. ago. Yeah. Uh, so that's kind of interesting. Uh, a lot of kind of stuff. You know, this is written in nineteen eighty eight, and it's kind of interesting to look at it now. Uh, some of the characters that are still around in politics today. So that yeah, that's a really good if, book as well. If you're like me and you kind of like to take things in maybe a little a little more through um, docudrama, well, docudrama is wrong, but historical reenactments or whatever you want to call it, Game Changes also was an HBO um, political drama they did with uh, Ed Harris as John McCain and then um, Julianne Moore as Sarah Palin. Uh, mm-hmm. And so that's, that's a good one. Tom Hanks produced it and I think Jay Rhodes directed it. So it's a good one, but that's that's another way to take it if you don't want to sit through whatever whatever the hell books are as long if whatever those are if you want to forget those and just go with that so well my review this week is a book uh and i thought you know in these these days it's really easy to kind of get down about the world and kind of the way things are going i think a lot of that i mean there are legitimate reasons i think there are some legitimate grievances and things that are wrong with the world today but i think some of that over gets overshadowed maybe gets outsized media coverage and and there are when in fact there are a lot of really good things going on with the world right now and, and a, a book i finished uh, last year actually uh called factfulness by a swedish academic named hans rosling i think does a really good job of kind of laying out uh how much like the world has improved in the last 100 years particularly in the last 40 years um he kind of makes the you know he's traveled a lot especially to third world countries, developing countries. And he, and he's and he's talked to people in, in, in kind of the more developed countries and asked them what they think about these third world countries. And he finds that a lot of their notions about the developing world is kind of rooted in what was the case 50 years ago. They think much of the third world is, is kind of rooted in backwater villages that, and people don't know how to read and they're constantly dealing with malaria and other diseases. And, and you know, certainly there are some of those problems evident, but uh, a lot of those countries have made a significant amount of progress in the last 50 years. And he uses a number of statistics to show how much the world has advanced when it comes to like literacy and infant mortality rates and uh, uh, malaria rates and uh, just and peace. I mean, the, the world has become 
uh, you know, believe it or not, a much peace, more peaceful world in the last 30, 40 years, uh, and that the, the, the course that these countries are on is not at all unlike what the developed world was on, you know, 100 years ago. The United States is, you know, 100 years ago at the term of the Industrial Revolution was at the same place, you know, like Africa is now, Sub-Saharan Africa is now. So I think it's a really eye-opening book to kind of put things in context, context. And I think there are a lot of reasons why, you know, people in the media, nonprofits have a lot of reason to kind of say, well, things are, there are still a lot of problems. And, and certainly there are a lot of problems, but it's also important to keep those in context and realize how much progress has been made. And I think it is a little uplifting to, show, to see that, you know, we've had a lot of big problems and we've worked together to maybe not solve and eradicate these problems, but to make a significant amount of pro progress for millions of people around the world. And it has helped a lot of people around the world. And uh, so I, th I found it very uplifting and I think it gave me a lot of hope for the future. And hopefully if you read it, you will have the same thought. So, uh, and hopefully we'll have some hope for the Royals this year too. So, you know, we'll see. That'll do it for us this week. Uh, thanks again for, to, to Mark Simon for being on the show. And thanks to Sean and Matthew for being on the podcast. Thank you to our readers and listeners for visiting our site. And we'll talk to you again next time.